Revelation chapter 5, Revelation chapter 5. We have talked about how the theme of the book of Revelation is that the king is coming. And, uh, you know, up to this point, we, we haven't seen a whole lot of, what, like, what does that mean? We've been introduced, we've seen the king, we've, you know, we, we've seen Jesus in his glory, we've seen the throne room in heaven, but the idea of him coming, uh, we're going to begin moving into that this morning with this section. Uh, because as John, you know, when he first enters the throne room of heaven, as we saw in chapter 4, all, uh, all attention is on the, the one who sits there. It's on you know, the King of Kings, the Lord. And, uh, and so John certainly sees other things that he mentions, but everything even he sees is focused on the one who's on the throne. And so chapter 5 ended appropriately, ended with everyone in heaven worshiping. And so when we start chapter 5, there's no break in time, even though we have a chapter break for our benefit, uh, but chapter 5, it now draws our attention to something that is in God's hand that John sees, a scroll. And, and while the chapter is still greatly focused on worship, the scroll um, and, and, and what it represents and, and Jesus taking it uh, gives us the reason why everyone's worshiping. And it's because Jesus is worthy to lay claim to that scroll and to fix our world. So chapter 5 of Revelation will begin in verse 1. It says, And I saw on the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book, written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. So we see this interesting scene in heaven where the book is revealed, and then there's you know, a problem because no one is found worthy to open the book that leaves John um, devastated and weeping. So we, we probably need to figure out what this thing is before we can figure out why it's affecting John so much. So we see here in the, in the right hand of, 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 of God's palm, in, in God's open palm, John sees this scroll, this book. The word, therefore, a book, it means a document in a rolled scroll. Now, this is not the first time we've seen God's open palm. Uh, not the first time a man has seen God's open palm. Moses uh, saw God's hand covering the cleft of the rock he was in while the Lord, remember, his glory passed by, and, and, and then he lifted up his hand, and then Moses saw God's afterglow. So God has said, no man has seen my face at any time, but, you know, the others have seen his hand, and so it's not weird for John to see his hand here. But what's in his hand is, is what the focus is on here, and it's this document in a rolled scroll, uh, bound books of parchment. The old King James says book, but bound books of parchment, they, they were invented by the Romans, and they had become popular around uh, the first century AD. However, rolled scrolls were still more highly regarded for many decades after that, and so this word represents a rolled scroll. Now, the word for a rolled scroll is used in Scripture always for an important official document. For example, uh, it's used most to describe the scrolls of Scripture, which is a very important official document. When the uh, Jewish... Uh, uh, president or rabbi would go in and he would take the, the uh, go into the ark, they would call it, where they would keep all the scrolls of Scripture. He would take that out and hand it to whoever was going to be doing the reading that day, and then they would roll it open to the appropriate part and do the reading, uh, and then usually teach. So th that's the word, uh, the thing this word is used to describe most. Uh, every other time it's used in Scripture, it's used for legal documents, for legal documentation. So here we see that it's, it's not just an official document, but it's unique in that it's written on the inside and on the outside of the scroll. That was not the norm. Uh, this was only done when there was so much information it couldn't fit on one side. So this official document contains a lot of information. The last thing it says is that it was sealed with seven seals. Now, uh, Roman law required that a will for it to be valid had to be sealed seven times by seven separate witnesses. Uh, and so what this is showing to us with these seven seals here is that this is a valid document. This is not just something that, you know, is, is, is kind of made up and poof, here's a document. This is a document that has been seen before. It's a document that has been, at now been sealed, or at least at some point in time in history was sealed, and now it's being brought back out. So this is a valid document. So the question, of course, is, well, then what is it? What kind of document is it? 
Well, it's not Scripture. Um, Scripture is an open document that all of us can read. It's not sealed. Uh, In fact, later in Revelation, John tells, uh, Jesus tells John, you know, this is not a seal. Don't seal up this book. So, So, Scripture is not a sealed document. So, this, if it's not Scripture, then the only other option is it's some kind of legal document. And to understand what kind of legal document it is, we don't need to hazard guesses. Uh, The Bible has shown this document to us before. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 2. Ezekiel chapter 2. We see this document in a very similar setting. Ezekiel has a vision of the chariot throne of God, so it's a very similar scene to the one that John sees here. And at the end of, uh, the vision is very extensive, so I mean, it goes on and off, but at the end of the initial vision, uh, the Lord calls Ezekiel to speak to the exiles there in Babylon uh, to, because they're being rebellious, or they're still re- rebelling against the Lord even after judgments come. And so in chapter 2, verse 8, as he's closing out this commission, you know, for Ezekiel to be a prophet, you know, to the people, He says in Ezekiel 2.8, but you, son of man, hear what I have to say to you. Don't be rebellious like that rebellious house. And in his first way, he's going to be obedient to the Lord. He says, open your mouth and eat what I give to you. We'll see what that is in a second. And when I looked and behold, behold, a hand was sent unto me, just like with John. And lo, a roll of a book or a rolled scroll was therein in the hand. And he spread it before me, opened it before me. It's not sealed here. He opened it before me, and it was written within and without. And there was written therein lamentations and mourning and woe. If you read further in Ezekiel, Ezekiel eventually eats it like God commanded him to. And he says that, you know, it was sweet in his, in his mouth um, because of what it was going to bring about, what it, the information that was therein. John is also told to eat the same document later on, and he describes it the same way. It was sweet in my mouth, but then he says it left a bitter feeling in my, in my belly. And the idea is it's bittersweet. There are good things there, but there are also, as Ezekiel mentions, mourning and lamentation and woe, you know? So what exactly is this document then that is sweet? There's some good things in it, but there's also mourning and lamentation and woe. Well, one of the most common legal documents that we read about in Scripture is a, a document of property. In fact, it's one of the few times we see a scroll in Scripture, a rolled scroll. And in Jeremiah 32 is probably one of the best examples of this. In Jeremiah 32, I won't read it to you because it's long, but Jeremiah is in prison. It's coming towards the end when Nebuchadnezzar is going to can, uh, conquer Israel. And King Zedekiah basically Jeremiah had been telling him, Zedekiah, submit to the king. Submit to Nebuchadnezzar and God will bless you and he'll take care of you. And all of Zedekiah's generals and counselors are going, if you do that, you're a dead man and, and nobody's gonna follow you. Everybody's gonna, there's gonna be sedition and insurrection. There's gonna be rebellion amongst the generals and the army and you know, you need to toe the line and be tough. And Zedekiah was like so unstable. He knew that this is what God wanted him to do, but he refused to do it. And so eventually he throws Jeremiah in jail. So this is right at the end when Nebuchadnezzar is coming for the final you know, destruction of Jerusalem. And, and so all of a sudden the Lord tells Jeremiah, he says, listen, your uncle, I think his name's Hanani, I'm not sure exactly, your uncle's going to come to you and ask you to purchase property. And of course, Jeremiah is thinking, Lord, it's all going to be gone in a second. Why would I purchase property? You know, it's, it's, no one's going to own property except the king of Babylon in a second. And he says, yes, but it's not going to stay that way. After 70 years, I will bring my people back. And I want you in faith to purchase this property so that when the time comes, you'll be able to, you know, it will be in your family. You're going to do this now to give a message of hope, even in the midst of judgment. And so this idea of, uh, he you know, has the document signed, his uncle comes in and they have it sealed and it's sealed up and, and one is given to the, you know, the legal folks and then other ones in Jeremiah's possession so that eventually one of his descendants later on can take this document and present it and say, that's my property. So the idea here is, is these are frequently used for, for property um, uh, transfers. They're also used to show that you are the legal owner or that this belongs, this property belongs to you. So, you know, some have said this scroll represents the title deed to the earth. Uh, some have said it contains, you know, all of God's will, which of course includes the fact that this world is his. Um, you could call it whatever you want, but the idea here is this document contains all of God's plan. It is all of God's plan to fix his world because it belongs to him. And he's going to do so by dealing with those who have ruined it by rebelling against him. That's why Ezekiel, it was sweet, but he also saw in it woe and lamentation and judgment, you know? 
It's bittersweet, like John says. You know, at the end of the book of Revelation, John's going to utter a prayer. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Even though all this horrible stuff is going to happen because people will continue to rebel, even though you're taking that, which is rightfully yours, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. That's the only answer. So that's the idea behind this document here. It is God's plan to fix our world, which includes dealing with those who've rebelled against him and messed it up. Now, that does create a problem because all of us are part of that rebellion. (laughs) You know, and since mankind as a whole has rebelled against God, who is qualified to enact God's plan? Who's qualified to be the one to bring it about? And so the angel calls out after this scroll is presented and says, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals? It mentions it's a strong angel, and he does so with a loud voice. And the idea is that way his proclamation could be heard in the farthest limits of the universe. Is there anyone in all of creation who is deserving, you know, who exists that's deserving to open this thing and bring about God's plan? Is there anyone out there deserving to be the one who enacts God's plan to take back that which is rightfully his, to right all the wrongs and restore things to the way they're supposed to be? You know, many in history have claimed to be that individual. You know, whether they're politicians, kings, you name it. I mean, they've claimed to be the one who has all the answers. Some have even tried to accomplish this, bring all the world under their control to fix it in their mind. But have any been worthy to do so? Deserving of that role? Is any human being in heaven or earth deserving of this role? So in verse 3, we see that as the proclamation goes out, no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth. Three separate groups of people. None of them were able to open the book, not even to look on it. They couldn't even do what Ezekiel did, just to open the seals and look at it, let alone bring it to pass. Well, when it says no man in heaven, it means none of the righteous who have already died. Not Adam, not Moses, not David, not Daniel, not Peter, no no one who had already died, who, who loved the Lord. None of them were worthy to do this. No one on earth, no one who was currently living on the earth, whether righteous or unrighteous, not John, and not, certainly not Emperor Domitian or any other living leader. And no one under the earth, none of the unrighteous who've died. So not Nimrod, not Nebuchadnezzar, not Nero, three people who tried to do this, none of them were worthy. And that no one could put into motion God's plan to rescue the world absolutely devastates John. John says, and I wept much because no man was found worthy to open, the, uh, to open and read the book, neither to look thereon. In John's mind, finding no one to enact God's plan to fix our world means it will remain broken forever. And that is truly a devastating thought, isn't it? You know, the, the fact that, I mean, I need to, I need to make it clear. I, I have lived 46 years, almost 47. My life has been awesome. I have, I have gotten to experience so many good things in my life. God is so good, you know. The, the, he has blessed me beyond my wildest imaginations. I, I have literally lived my dream. Well, everything I had hoped to get out of life, I, I am experiencing it, you know. And so I, I, I love life. I, I love all the things that God's brought into my life. But I tell you what, as good as it is, it is nothing compared to Jesus coming back and fixing everything. There is still so much that's wrong with this world, so much that's broken, and and as much as good as I've experienced in the land of the living, all of that can go for Jesus to come and fix this mess. None of it's worth it to go, well, Lord, can we just keep this a little bit longer? No, I'm I'm opting out. I I am taking the opt-out clause as good as God's been. I I want better. I want this. Because there's still pain, there's still sorrow, there's still sadness, there's still sin, there's still death. And so when we find John, his, his heart's broken by this idea. He's devastated. He wept much. The word there, it, it means out loud crying. This is not a sniffle or a whimper. This is, this is wailing. And, and it's in the imperfect tense, which means he kept on weeping much. He just is going on and on because as no one's coming forth, he's going, that's it? I mean, I mean after this is all done for me, I go, I go back to the Isle of Patmos and that's it? That's as good as it gets? Now, that John wept like this certainly doesn't mean he was just weeping for himself. John had lived a long life. He was 90 years old at this point in time at least. He's going to be here in just a few years. Which shows that John wasn't just weeping for himself. He was weeping for the world. Which shows us that John loved the world, even in its broken, wicked, 
an antagonistic state. So I ask you this morning, is your heart broken for the lost people around you? Is it broken for the state things are in? Or are you just frustrated and angry? Those are two very different things. Two very different things. Our world is filled with frustration and anger. And I'm I'm not here to say that there's not a reason to be frustrated or angry. You know, anyone that has spoken to me who's frustrated and angry right now, they've got some good reasons. But those are two very different responses. Because one is the heart of God, and one is just carnal. And if your heart, how about we look at Jesus? Jesus was frustrated and angry with the things he saw in our world, right? We came in, I mean, he saw the temple after he'd already cleansed it three years earlier, taking all that, the money lenders and everything out. They're there, right there back again. And so when he comes into Jerusalem, he cleanses out the temple again. You made my father's house a den of thieves again. But what do you find him doing after he's done? He's not putting a flag in the middle of the temple mountain saying, this is mine. He's weeping, weeping. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how a hen, like a hen gathers her chicks together, how I've longed to do that with you, but you don't want me to. He wept at their rebellion. He wept at their antagonism. He wept at the fact that they were going to crucify him, not for himself, but for them. If my heart isn't broken for the broken world I live in, then I, I need a lot more time on my knees so that God can change me and way less time using my mouth or my keyboard. Now, while like John and like Jesus, we should weep for our broken world and the pain it brings, we're not to constantly weep. We're also to have hope and joy because the truth is someone is deserving. Look at verses five and six. And one of the elders said unto me, weep not, or literally stop weeping. You don't need to keep on crying. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. You know, an elder comes forth and he tells John he doesn't need to keep on weeping. You must not, you must, you must stop weeping. You know, don't go on like this. Look at this instead of being hopeless, which is why John is crying. Don't be hopeless. Look at this instead. Now, I think it's interesting that an elder comes to him because it's very popular to say that these elders are the, you know, 12 sons of Jacob and the 12 apostles, you know, and, and if that's the case, then why, why isn't, you know, John, when he comes over and taps him on the shoulder and says, hey, stop crying, he's like, Andrew, Andrew, it's so good to see you, you know, or Bartholomew, it's so good to see you, you know, or, or you know, hey, I'm from your tribe, so-and-so, you know, I've always wanted to meet you, you know. Levi, how'd you murder a whole city and get here? God's really gracious. He doesn't show any recognition for this individual. And so whoever this member of the church is, as I've described it to you as, you know, the representative of the church, you know, he doesn't know who it is. Could be you. Could be anybody throughout the history of believers. But he says to him, Stop weeping. Look at this instead of being hopeless. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals of it. The lion of the tribe of Judah in Genesis 49.9, the very beginning of Judah's history, Jacob pronounces that blessing upon his son when he says Judah is a lion's whelp. We see that image throughout Scripture. You know, the Lord will come roaring like a lion, a messianic idea and concept. But much more clear messianic idea and concept is the root of David. The word there means offspring or descendant of David. When Jesus was addressed in his earthly ministry, what was the most common way they spoke to him? Hail, son of David, have mercy on me, right? I mean, that is a direct title for the Messiah. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, it tells us that, you know, out of the, uh, uh, well, I'll just read it to you so I don't mess it up. Isaiah 11.1, 1, out of the 
There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. In Isaiah eleven ten, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for a, an ensign, a banner for the, of the people. And to it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. It refers to the Messiah and his, his coming kingdom. So this idea of the lion of the tribe of Judah and the son of David, the offspring of David, it refers to the Messiah, the ruling Messiah, the Messiah, the kingly Messiah that he's going to come and reign. These prophetic descriptions of the Messiah, you know, the elder declares, well, he's done it. He has prevailed. He has triumphed. He has overcome to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. That is very interesting. Jesus in John 16 at the end of his ministry, right before he was about to go to the cross, in John 16, 33, he said, in this world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have what? I have overcome, I have triumphed, I have prevailed over the world. Same word. Jesus is the one who prevailed and now, therefore, is worthy to take the book and to loose the seals. Jesus, you know, remember initially, you know, when, when, when God created this world, what did he do to Adam and Eve? He said, here, take dominion. I've, I've created this and I want you to take dominion over the world. Now, were Adam and Eve faithful with that? No, and we've been being unfaithful with that ever since. <laughs> you, know, you know, I see all the time people are upset, oh, that Eve, all oh, that Adam, and, and I just kind of think... What about you? You know, what about me, man? I, I've, I've, I have contributed, you know? I, I have added my, uh, my uh, crimes to the list. We have not been faithful. But Jesus, the last Adam, as Scripture calls him, succeeded where the first Adam failed. You know, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22, it tells us, you know, that, those exact words. It says, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. 1 Corinthians 15, 45. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul, but the last Adam, Jesus, was made a quickening spirit. He brings life. 1 Corinthians 15, 47. The first man is of the earth earthy, but the second man is the Lord from heaven. He is the last Adam. He is that, 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 uh, the last man, the one, last man standing in a sense. He's the one who has finally succeeded where all of us has failed. And so 1 Corinthians 15, 49, as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. He is our representative. He has succeeded in every way that we failed. So while Jesus is certainly worthy by his nature, being the second person of the Godhead, we see here that the elder declares he is worthy. His worth is here as the son of David who has prevailed. His perfect life as a man, his perfect death on the cross, his resurrection, he has prevailed, he has triumphed over the world, and that qualifies him to answer this proclamation. Because the proclamation is, who is out there who is worthy in the universe? Well, God is distinct and separate from our universe, right? He is before time, before space, before all of that. But Jesus stepped into time and space, he became a man, and therefore he is worthy. There is a man who is worthy, who has prevailed, and can do this. And thus, John doesn't need to weep anymore because God's plan will be enacted. Things won't stay this way. The earth will return to how it should be through Christ. Look at verse six. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, these living creatures, the cherubim, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. The word there for slain, it, it implies what you think. It's not it just died, but slain, violently killed. It means butchered, slaughtered. Jesus, the Jesus that John sees here in his glory, he still sees him, though, bearing the marks of the violence of the cross that he saw in the room when Jesus appeared. When he spoke to Thomas and he said, put your finger in, my, in, my, in the nail prints. Put your hand in my side and be not unbelieving. He sees those things. And yet, just as John saw Jesus in that room, not slouching or limping around because he was violently killed, he sees Jesus standing, standing tall. He is fully risen, prevailed over death in the world, and all of those wounds to stand tall and deserving. It mentions here that he's a lamb, but he's a lamb who has seven horns and seven eyes. I don't know about you, but I, I'm not letting the kids go pet that thing in the, in the zoo. 
That, that's, the, that's a different animal we're talking about here. I mean, yeah, you go into the petting zoo and it might stink a little bit. And maybe some of the animals are a little ornery and stuff, but you don't usually worry about, you know, you know, your kids touching them and whatever. I mean, maybe germs, but my point is you're not worried about getting attacked, you know. I have heard that, that you know, the, the ones that have the, you know, like the curved horns and stuff, that they, they, can, they can be a little scary. This dude, this one's got seven though, seven horns. This is, horns in the scripture, they always speak of exaltation, might, authority. And, and so seven, of course, being a, a, the word number that speaks of completion or perfection, you know, this lamb has absolute strength, absolute authority. He has been completely exalted. And isn't that what Jesus tells us about himself in Matthew 28, 18? All authority in heaven has been given unto me, Right? He is the ultimate king. He is, he is, you know, the name above all names, right? Not only does he have seven horns, but he has seven eyes. You gotta love commentaries. I always chuckle when I read some commentaries because, you know, they'll spend eight, eight, eight or ten pages talking about something the Bible just tells you what it is. And they're trying, they go into deep to what it is, you know. Well, the, the eyes, you know, it means intelligence and this and that and the other thing. It just, we, I don't need any of that, you know. I actually, the Bible tells me and it's better than you, so... The Bible tells us that it's these seven spirits of God which have gone throughout all the earth. So what do the eyes speak of? It represents the work of God's spirit in Jesus still, still. So what do you mean still? Well, remember when Jesus came to the earth, you know, he lived life as we're supposed to live it, filled with the Holy Spirit, yielded to the Father, obedient to the Father, always doing the Father's will, right? That's how we were, we were never supposed to do it on our own. We were always supposed to do it under the power of the Holy Spirit, and Jesus did it that way. He didn't, he didn't do, it, you know, do it as God. He did it as a man. He could have just lived a perfect life as God, but he did it as we were supposed to do it, as a man who was yielded to the Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit. And that didn't stop when he went to heaven. In John chapter 3, 34, you know, John the Baptist explains you know, why he has to decrease so that, and why Jesus should be increasing. He says, Listen, God may have anointed my life, he may have anointed my ministry, but God doesn't give the Spirit by measure to this guy. God doesn't hold back at all. He's got the fullness of the Spirit. Jesus had the full working of God's Spirit in his life. And so, again, Jesus isn't just worthy by virtue of his eternal nature as a son of God. Surely he is. If he never did anything, he'd still be worthy. But the idea here is he's not necessarily taking the scroll just as the second person of the Trinity. He is also taking it as the perfect, sinless, fully yielded, fully filled with the Holy Spirit, Son of Man, to rule and reign in perfection in the power of the Holy Spirit. Why is that important? Because Jesus didn't just join our club for 30 years. He didn't just become a man and then go, wow, that was nice, you know, and then shed it when he went to heaven. He's still fully man. He still is fully human. And when he takes dominion over the earth, as God commanded a man to do, he will do it as a man. You ever wonder why you're reading that? I think it's, it might be Colossians. I'm not sure. It might be Romans. It might be 1 Corinthians. I think it's 1 Corinthians, actually, 15. But it mentions that after the resurrection and after his reign and all the kingdom age is done, and when all things have been yielded to the Father, then eventually after he's reigned, he'll take the kingdom and he's going to bring it and submit it to the Father. Why would he need to do that? I mean, he's God. He's, him and God the Father are equal. Why would he need to submit it to the Father? He's already done that. Because he's ruling also as a man. He has to do it as a man should do it. Fully yielded to the Father. Fully submitted to the Father. It doesn't make Jesus lesser than the Father. But he's doing it also as a man. The difference is he'll never fail like Adam and Eve and you and I do. He will do it perfectly. And as the scripture says, righteousness will cover the earth like water covers the sea. Doesn't that sound good? And thus John sees Jesus as we're supposed to understand him. He is our meek sacrifice who is also unconquerable. He is the one who's powerful enough as God but also deserving as man to fix our world. You see, if we only see the cross and not the throne room, Jesus can come across as a pushover at best and a butler at worst. And if we only see the throne room and not the cross, then Jesus comes across as a harsh taskmaster or an army boot in the sky. Jesus, he is all-powerful. He sees all and he will deal with all evil. 
but he's also gracious and sympathetic to our struggles with sin because he's been in our shoes. And that's why the writer of Hebrews urges us to come boldly before the throne of grace. Why? Because we need to remember Jesus sits on a throne and he's the king of kings. Never forget that. We must never forget that it's a place of grace and that he's not ashamed to call us family. Amen? That he wants to help us overcome sin as the one who never succumbed to its temptations. The one who whooped it and can help us to do the same. And so as Jesus is there to take the scroll, we see that all the church and much of heaven bows down and worships him. John, verse seven, it says, and he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne, verse eight, and when he had taken the book, the four beasts, the cherubim, and the four and 20 elders fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song saying, you are worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and have made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth. John says he came and took the book. Uh, this was something that, that, that happened very quickly. The word took there is in the perfect tense. So it, it actually had already happened before John looked. What he actually sees is he sees how people react to Jesus taking the scroll. For when he had taken the book, he sees the four living creatures bow down. The 24 elders bow down before the lamb. And then each one of them, uh, which means it, the, the nature of the word there in the Greek, it means it's referring to the elders, not the cherubim. The cherubim didn't have harps and these bowls filled with incense, but the elders do. Um, in one hand, they've got a, a, a harps. These are uh, the small, not the big harp, but like a small handheld harp. Uh, you'd usually play it with a small piece of ivory, so it's a lot like the guitars that were being played up here, just a little bit smaller. Um, and I think it's important to point out that there will be instruments in heaven, there will be. Um, I know sometimes I, I've, I've had people say, you know, why, why do we use instruments in worship? They never use instruments in the, in the, in the church in the book of Acts. They say, yeah, they were still learning. In, in Revelation, we see the finished product, and we want to be on the right side. We're practicing. <laughs> Heaven's going to have instrumental worship, all right? No one says amen. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> you thought some musicians would be like, praise the Lord. <laughs> it's going to have instrumental worship. It's going to be there. So get used to it. Practice. It says that there's going to be, also on the other hand, they have these vials. These, these are broad, shallow bowls, and they're filled with odors. Old King James says it means incense. And, and it says it's the, we don't have to know what it is. It's the, it represents the prayers of the saints. And, and incense has always been uh, associated with prayer. And in, in Psalm 141, verse 2, the, the songwriter, uh, he says here, um, let my prayer be set forth before you as incense and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. He makes two comparisons here. So like when they would sing and they would worship or they would pray, they would often lift up their hands. And he would you know, explain, you know, just like the lifting up my hands is like the evening sacrifice, so the incense is like my prayers. Let my prayers be like that incense that the priest brings before the golden altar, right before your presence. Let my prayers go before your presence, Lord, in the same way that I lift up my hands and it's just like I'm making that sacrifice. You know, when we, when we lift up our hands in worship to the Lord, whether we're praying or singing, you know, the ideas we're communicating, to God uh, what the evening sacrifice communicated. What was the evening sacrifice? Well, they offered a sin offering and a burnt offering every morning and every evening. Why? Well, the idea was, is Lord, we, we, we messed up today a little bit and we want, we want to ask for your forgiveness and, and Lord, we want to recommit our lives to be totally surrendered to you. A burnt offering, an all-consumed offering. Nobody ate anything but the Lord. All of it was consumed on the altar and it symbolized absolute surrender, total commitment. Lord, we're committing the next day to you. And that's what we do when we lift up our hands. We're saying, Lord, I, you know, I, I confess in my sin. I, you know, I blew it here and there, and I'm, I'm, I'm recommitting my life to you 100%. Surrendering all to you. That's what we do when we lift up our hands. And the idea of our prayers being like incense, it's the same type of comparison. You know, when we pray, it's like that sweet offering to the Lord. And, and the hope is that it you know, reaches up to the Lord. So the question, of course, is what prayers are in these bowls? What, what, is this, what prayers do this, does this incense represent? Well, I think it's the one Jesus taught us to pray. 
taught every one of us to pray. The one Jesus is about to answer. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Isn't that what we're praying for every day? Every day. I, I pray for, I prayed for President Trump. Every day I pray for, I'm praying for President Biden every day. I pray for our Congress. I pray for our mayor. I pray for our governor. I pray for all these folks every day. I pray that they do a good job. And, 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 and when they do a good job, that makes people happier. The book of Proverbs talks about it. When you have a good leader, everybody's good. Everybody's happy. You know, things are good, you know? And when you have a bad one, everybody groans. So the idea is I do pray for them, but I do not pray that their kingdom stays. Never do I pray that. I do not pray that their kingdom becomes something that this is how it's always going to be. No, I pray his kingdom come. That is the prayer of the Christian. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. These other people come and go, and as good as a job as they might do will never be as good as a job you do. So your kingdom come, your will be done. That's what we pray, and this is, this is what's going to, about to be answered, which is why the church here, these elders, this is such a huge moment for them because everything they have lived for, everything they have served God for, everything they've sacrificed for, everything some of them have probably died for, well, now it's all about to happen. And thus all of the elders erupt in a song of worship where they sang a new song, verse 9, saying unto the Lord, you are worthy. Jesus, you are worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, to bring that kingdom to pass, to bring about God's plan. Why? Because you were slain and you've redeemed us to God by your blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. You've made us unto our God, kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. What does it mean that it's a new song? Well, there have been plenty of songs sung about what the Lord would do in other circumstances, for example, you know, uh, there have been praise that's gone up for the Lord for who he is, that he's, you know, the, he's Jehovah God, that he's, he's the all-knowing one. We've seen lots of songs in Scripture that praised him, praised him for what he did for Israel. You know, we're going to see later on that there, there are going to be saved Jews who are going to be singing the song of Moses. It's not a new song. It's a song that's been sung before, a song of deliverance, right? But this is a new song because up to this point, even though heaven wasn't lacking in singing or worship or earth wasn't lacking in singing or worship, songs like the one they sing here, they are new because it's a new thing for the Son of God to become a man. It, we're in a new covenant with God based on what the Son of God did when he became the Son of Man. It is a new thing. It's, it's not the same covenant that God has with Israel. It's a different one. This is a new thing. God was always deserving of worship because of who he was and what he'd done for Israel. So Jesus, of course, is the second person of the Trinity. He was always deserving too. But this is a new reason he deserves to be worshiped, and it's because the people singing it are in a new relationship, a different covenant, a new covenant with him. And they explain that. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every kindred, tongue, and people, and nation. That can only describe the group called the church, which, by the way, means we're in heaven before the seals are opened and before the tribulation begins. He goes on, or the elders go on to sing, and he has made us, not everyone, but us, unto our God, kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. You know, Israel's going to have their own awesome, unique position in the kingdom. The tribulation saints will have their own awesome, unique position in, in the kingdom. And we will have our own awesome, unique position in the kingdom as the church. And part of who we are is we will reign with Christ on the earth as kings and priests. Romans, Revelation chapter 1, verse 6, John describes that as us, the church. Now, I've already talked about our role during Jesus' millennial kingdom as reigning, uh, when I, I, I taught through Jesus' promises to Thyatira in Revelation 3, 26 to 28. So if you want to go back and look at that, you can. But what does it mean that we're priests unto God? What was the job of a priest? It's a simple job. The priest's job was to go before God on behalf of the people and to go before the people on behalf of God. He was like a mediator in that sense. Now, we don't need a priestly cast in the church right now because Jesus is our great high priest, right? And so there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So this is where we get the idea of, of a doctrine called the priesthood of all believers. I am not your priest, all right? So please don't ever call me Father Will. You know, if you just want to call me old, that's fine, but 
I am not your priest. I'm not your go-between between the Lord. I don't have a special hookup with Jesus that, you know, that, you know my prayers, they go a little bit farther than yours. I don't have any of that. You, you don't ever have to wait uh, to, to minister to somebody. Like, you don't have to go, Pastor Will, I hope he talks about love today because, you know, you know my friend over here really needs to know about God's love. You tell him about God's love. You tell him how much God loves him. You tell him what God's done for him. You tell him who they are in Christ. You don't need me to do that. We all are qualified to go out to all the world and to preach the gospel, to make disciples, to tell God of his people of God's wonders, of his great love. We're all qualified to minister to our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why it tells us to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, like some do. He says, but rather to provoke one another to love and to good works, to stir each other up, to follow the Lord, you know, to do the right thing. All of us can do that. I have a role, and this is my role, and I do that in this role, but you could do that in your role. So we are all in that place, and, and we can all pray to the Lord. We can take people before the Lord and say, Lord, this person, they're hurting, or they're going through this, or they need, they need to, their eyes opened. We can go before the King of Kings and to our one mediator, and he hears us all the same. The effectual fervent prayer, not of a pastor, but it says of a righteous man, and obviously a woman is thought of in there too, avails much. So how do I know if I'm a righteous person? If you're saved, you're righteous. That's what it means to be saved. You've been justified, declared not guilty. You've been declared righteous. And your prayer works. So we've been made priests unto him. Well, after the church sings their song, the rest of heaven erupts into a different song. In verse 11, it says, And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts, the cherubim, and the elders and heard the voice of all these angels round about all these other people who've been singing. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. I don't need a calculator to know that's a big number. Listen, there are only four cherubim that are mentioned and 24 elders. So you take that number and subtract it. That means there's a ton of angels up there who are on God's side. And that means there's a lot of angels on our side, guys. Do you remember that passage in the Old Testament where the prophet, you know, the, the Syrian army's coming up against him and his servant's like, what are we gonna do? It's just you and me. And he's like, Lord, open his eyes so he can see that those that are with us are more than those that are with them. And then God opens the servant eyes and the whole, all of, they're in a valley and all around the valley and the, the hills around there is just topped with angels and chariots of fire and it's just like, oh, okay. <laughs> I'm good, I'm good. We need to remember that. We have nothing to fear. Anything that happens does so with God's knowledge and with God's permission because his forces are far more than capable of handling any challenge than anything mankind or anything the enemy throws at us or at him. And that means, guys, we don't need to fight evil with evil or match force with force. You know, I love in the garden after Jesus is about to be arrested and Peter, you know, he, he, he makes his battle cry, you know, and he goes to battle for Jesus. You're not taking my Jesus. And, you know, he's highly successful in chopping off an ear. You know, Peter, you know, I will lop off ears for you, Lord, for the rest of my days. You know, please elect me for first pope. You know, Jesus stops him and he's like, Peter, I don't need you cutting ears off for me, okay? You know, that's not how this is gonna, we're gonna like, you know, take over. It's not how we're gonna fix all this mess. My father has a legion of angels that I can just ask for and they'll be here. This is part of his plan. I, I don't need you to do this for me. We don't need to return force with force. The weapons of our warfare, the scripture says, are what? Not carnal, they're not fleshly, not physical. But they are mighty, they're spiritual, and they're mighty through God to the tearing down of strongholds. You say, well, what do we do if, if we're insulted or if we're wronged or, or even if we're persecuted? Well, the Bible gives us clear instruction about what to do if that happens. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 23, it says, well, what do you do if you're beaten, you know, for righteousness. Verse 21 says, for even hereunto were you called. This is what you're called to. I mean, that's part of the package. That's part of, part of coming down front and saying the prayer, right? Repenting of your sins and trusting Christ. 
That's what you signed up for. Here until you are called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. What were his steps? Who did no sin, neither was there guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile back. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but instead he committed himself to him that judges righteously. That's not just like one option of Christianity. That's an option of Christianity, and the other option is the ear-chopping option, you know? No, this is the option. This is not, this is it. This is the command from God. If we're insulted, if we are wronged, if we are persecuted, this is our biblical response. That's what a Christian does. You know, we don't return evil for evil. We don't return insult for insult. We don't, you know, threaten when we suffer, we're someone causes us to suffer. Instead, we commit ourselves to him who judges righteously, knowing that at any moment, if this isn't part of his plan, he can just say the word, and we're, we're rescued. Now, the song of the church proclaimed that Jesus was deserving to take the scroll and bring about God's plan to rescue our world. This song here in Revelation by this other group um, proclaims that Jesus is worthy of that lofty position. It says, they say with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive seven things, power, riches, and wisdom, strength, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And then after they say that, every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, John heard them saying four of, the, of those seven things, blessing, and honor, and glory, and power, be unto him that sits on the, upon the throne, the Father, and unto the Lamb forever and ever, Jesus. The Father and the Son equally are worthy of these things. So what are they saying when worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive these seven things? Well, when they say that he's worthy to receive power, it means, okay, he's got this rule, the right to rule from God, to enact God's plan on the earth, to deal with the rebels and to set up the kingdom. When we say he's worthy of all power, or worthy of power, it means that he is worthy of God's full permission to do as he pleases. That God gives him the power to do as he wants. He's worthy of that. I wouldn't be worthy of that. If God gave me absolute power, you need to run. But Jesus, he is worthy of God's full permission to do whatever he wants because he's going to do the right thing. He's worthy of the riches, all of God's resources to do and act the plan, you know? He's worthy of all of it. He's worthy of wisdom, all of God's direction to guide his rule. I'd, if God gave me all the wisdom, I'd mess it up somehow. But Jesus won't. He's worthy. He's worthy of all strength. It means capability. He's worthy of all the empowerment, all the power of the Spirit to carry out that wisdom. He won't abuse it. He's worthy of honor, a high status, all the authority that he'll have to rule. And he's worthy of glory and blessing, praise, of favor. He's worthy of all the universe's praise, all of heaven's praise for what he'll do, and all of God's favor in all that he does. Now, these words are so powerful because anyone who sings them, and we sing them often here, we sing them at least you know, every other week, maybe even every week, when we talk about Jesus' worth. When you and I sing those words, we're ascribing those things to Jesus from ourselves. I always choke up when, we, when a song uses these lyrics because it's, it's deeply personal. As I'm singing, I'm, I'm being confronted with the question, you know, have I given Jesus full permission to do as he pleases? God is, the Father is. So have I. Have I given Jesus permission to do fully as he pleases? Have I surrendered to Jesus all my resources, all my riches? You know, have I yielded to his direction, his wisdom for my life? Have I laid down my abilities that he might live through me? Have I given him the authority to rule in my life? Have I praised and blessed him for what he's done for me? Those are heavy things to ponder, when it, whether you're praying or whether you're singing. And when you and I consider that everything in creation was made to do just that, and they ascribe it to him here, then that my only proper response is to do the same and to fall on my face in awe. Verse 14, and the four beasts, the cherubim, they said, amen, that's true. That is the truth. He is worthy of all those things. He's deserving of that from everyone. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that lived forever and ever. 
There's a part of me that wonders if they couldn't even get out and amen. Because it was just better just to fall down. Of course it's true. And now we give it. We give it all to him. Now one thing to point out here before we kind of close. In Isaiah 42, 8, God makes it very clear, the Father, he makes it very clear that he will share his glory with no one. He says, I am the Lord. In Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. If the church and the cherubim in inspired scripture says amen, it's the truth, to a declaration that Jesus is equal to the Father, they are both worthy of all these things forever and ever and ever, then any person in a church or who claims to speak for God who says that Jesus is not God is a liar, and you should not listen to them. They're a false teacher, and you should not listen to them. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the second person of the Godhead, and he is equal with the Father. And thus is fulfilled everything that Paul said when he's in the incarnation, when Jesus, he said, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not think it was robbery to be equal with God, something to be held on to at all costs. But instead, he, he became a man, laid down all that, became a man, took upon our flesh, and then humbled himself in obedience to the Father, even to the death on the cross. And what does Paul say afterwards? He says, that wherefore, he has been given a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we see it happen right here. The full completion of the incarnation. That it starts at the birth, goes to the cross, and then it will be consummated in his reign. It's all a part of the incarnation. And as we begin chapter six, I'm not gonna do that today. The roast won't burn. But in chapter six, there's no break again still. As all worship is going on, Jesus begins to open this thing. And so as we begin chapter six and the seals begin to be opened, that is going to start a sequence of events that can all be described as Jesus taking back that which is rightfully is. The king taking one step at a time to say, this is mine. I will not allow it to go on as it is anymore. Why is that important? Because if we study through all these things, there'll be lots of interesting things. We'll be like, oh, locusts coming out of the abyss and, you know, and the sun being darkened and crazy stuff. And there'll be even things that we'll look around and go, well, I can see some of the pieces in place for that already. And that's fine. That's wonderful. But what else do we see? As Jesus is step by step moving in on that which is rightfully is, we continually see a world that shakes its fist and resists and says, no, it's ours. You can't have it. We can fix it. We're worthy. And therefore, it is imperative that as we go through the rest of the book of Revelation, we see these things begin to happen, that we make sure we aren't opposing his rule in our lives now. Amen? Let's all stand. So the band's going to come up, and they're going to lead us in song. But, you know, we, the title of this message is Why We Worship Jesus. Why do we worship Jesus? Well, of course, because he's God but also because he became a man, because he lived the perfect life that we failed to and then laid down that perfect life as a sacrifice to redeem us from our sins. Because he rose from the dead and he ascended to the right hand of the Father where someday he will rapture us to be by his side. And because he will take the scroll, he will rescue our world and he will perfectly reign forever and ever. And Lord, that is a reason to worship you now to give you everything, Lord, to ascribe unto you all of our riches, Lord, to give you all authority in our life, to praise you, to bless you, to say, Lord, you reign in us, have your way. Lord, you are worthy of us saying all that even as we sing. So, Lord, work in our hearts. If there's any areas that we're not blessing you, that we're being complaining, Lord, in any areas that we've not yielded something to you, we've not surrendered it to you, if there are any areas, you know, that we've held on to something for ourselves. Lord, reveal it to us as we sing and that we might ascribe all of it to you, which is our, our reasonable act of worship, Lord. It's, it's what we were created to do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.